God's edition, men and women at Chesterfield County Jail. Good morning to everyone. Go ahead and have a seat. So honored to be with you this morning. We've had so much fun so far today. And, uh, you know, we have one of the best pastors we could ever ask for. Can we give it up for our pastor this morning? If, we, if you and I haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Katie Samuel, and he is my husband, and I'm just so proud of him. I wish you could see what I see. He is, he's a, well, I mean, you see that he's a visionary, but I get to get seven calls a day letting me know, like, the latest idea and the latest plan and the latest thing we're going to do. It's a lot. Like, it's a lot. But it's so much fun. He always has new ideas, and he just, he loves you so much. We love you so much. We pray for you, and you make it easy to love you. This is just an incredible church. You've always supported us and loved us. We're just so, so honored to be able to serve this church family. Well, you know, we are continuing in our series called What About? And it's a survey that we took at Easter that we asked people, what are some things that you want to hear a little bit more about? And one of the things that kept popping up over and over was women and women in the Bible. And so we figured, who better to talk about it than a woman, right? Yeah. So, so every now and then, Brandon convinces me to do this. And, you know, being married to somebody like, that can preach like Brandon, I'll ask him preaching advice. And it's kind of like asking an Olympic gymnast, how do you do that like double twisting, double full layout thing that you do? And they're like, oh, you just do like the round off back hands, back handspring, and then the rest of it just kind of happens. And you're like, that's really not how it works. Like, it's like maybe for you, that's how it works. But for the rest of us, that's not how it works. But anyway, I'm grateful to be here. So glad to share with you today. You know, Christianity has kind of a bad rap when it comes to women because it has, it has a little bit of um, a reputation for being misogynistic, for being patriarchal, for being maybe, maybe something that is meant to keep women quiet and keep them smaller than they are. And I'm really hoping that after our time together today that you will see and, and know clearly God's incredible value that he places on women and the place that they can serve in the kingdom of God. So let's go on this journey together. I, I mean, I think the best place to start is at the beginning, right? God's original intention for, for women in creation. So we start at the beginning. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole creation story, night and day, light and dark, water and land, animals and plants, all those things, and man... And then and at the end of every day, he kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. Well, eventually, he looked at creation, though, and he said, something is missing. There's a missing piece here. Something's not good. And that's the first time in Scripture that he says something is not good. And what he said is that it's not good for man to be alone. Now, if I handed this microphone around this room to a bunch of ladies in here, I could probably hear all kinds of stories for why man should not be left alone, Right? <laughs> Lots of stories around here. So I was going through my phone this week, and I found a couple of videos to show you why man at my house should not be left alone. Where is it? It's in the kitchen. It's a bird in the house. There's a bird in the house. That's not a bat. That is a bird. It's a robin. It's a robin. It's a holding a screen. Now, notice that screen was not being shared with anyone else. That was only his screen. 
not to be shared. And another thing that makes me laugh in that video is you can hear me say, that is not a bat. Because in New York, we had a little bat issue in our attic, and he is so traumatized that the man can look at a bird and still be afraid that it's a bat. So it is not good for Brandon Samuel to be left alone. Um, another story that comes to mind when I think about this is... Uh, I have four, I had four kids in about five and a half years. And so there were some really like intense years there, especially when stomach bug hits the house. All of you who have like kids or multiple kids, you get, you get it. Cause you're like, everyone's going to go down like dominoes. This thing's going to last for like two weeks. Right. So, but God has this great grace on moms because he allows them to stay healthy enough to take care of everybody else. And then she usually goes down last. Right. So this is one of those situations. I was in the bathroom. I was really sick. Everybody else is feeling great. Um, and so I'm in the bathroom not doing well at all. And Carter, who's my like super soft-hearted, thinks about other people kid, comes in the bathroom and he just starts rubbing my back. I'm like, oh, you know, all this investment of time and care that I've given him, it, it's coming back to me now. He, look at the empathy he has. It's, it's unreal. And he gets right in my face. And he says, I need a sandwich. <laughs> like, even when we're sick, they need us. We just keep going. So creation is lacking something, and female is about to be created. Now, the difference between male and females reflects his image, right? Every person, whether male or female, represents something about God. And it, it's meant to be unique. Man has something that woman doesn't have. Woman has something that man doesn't have. And, and, when, and, and in culture, we have to be so careful. When we start to blur these lines, it really ends up distorting the image that God created each of us to reflect of him. We have to be so careful when it comes to what the culture is trying to speak to us. So in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. First thing I want you to see in scripture is that he designed you on purpose, for a purpose, with intention, because something in creation was missing. So the term helper suitable is actually a Hebrew phrase. It's two very important words called ezer kenegdo. Okay, and these are the very first two words in scripture that God ever speaks over woman. So these two words are pretty important. The very first two words ever spoken about woman in scripture. Now, when you hear the word helper, a lot of things come to mind. You, know, you can help someone clean out their car. You can help someone clean the house. You can help someone run errands. But the idea is that it's like something that they could really do for themselves, um, but you're just kind of like lightening their load, right? You're just making it a little bit easier for them. But that's not what the word ezer means. Ezer is a strong word, and it carries with it the idea, somebody who aids, strengthens, or helps someone in a way they cannot help themselves. How cool is that? In a way, they cannot help themselves. So you're not just coming alongside someone who doesn't really totally need you. You're just making it a little bit easier. It's literally something that they cannot do for themselves. The only other place in scripture we see Ezer is when God calls himself Ezer in relation to Israel. Okay, so his relationship with Israel was one of contender, was one of protection. He was a shield. He was wisdom to them. He, he warred. He went to war for them. So he compares our Ezer, woman Ezer, to his relationship with Israel. So we see the word hope throughout the Psalms. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help, Ezer, and our shield. In Psalm 70, yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. 
And then one of our favorites, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So two Ezers, woman and God. And so this is a strong word, ladies. This is not passive. This is not weak. This is a strong word that he gives for woman. And then the second word is connecto. It's the only place in the Bible that we see this word. And it carries the idea of somebody who stands opposite of you. And they kind of like don't let you go just wherever you want to go. They do it. I love it. They do it. They do it lovingly. They do it lovingly and passionately. But they don't let stuff go. Right? Like they, they want. Connecto says what's going on with you? Like, what's going on in your mind? Or what's happening with you? I think, I think you're going in the wrong direction. You, you need to come back, back here. Now, some of you are like, my wife's got that down, right? Or my mom's got that down big time. But, you know, Ezra and Connecto are, are both strong words when you put them together. So Ezra is side-by-side helper, and Connecto is that face-to-face challenge you when they see, they contend for you. So women are meant to contend to show up and contend for the people in the life. They're supposed to contend for the kingdom of God, and they're supposed to contend against the enemy on behalf of the people in their life. A few years ago, when we were going through all the COVID stuff, um, our oldest, who is extremely social, and she gave me permission, permission to share this, very social. Now, school's not her jam. It's never been her jam. It's never going to be her jam. We just want her to get through. We'd be thrilled. Like, we're just, like, getting through, right? So what makes school bearable for her is the relationships, is, the, is the, all the social stuff. And so once all of that got taken away and she's left in a room by herself with just a laptop, um, she just, she was not doing well. And it was just a really, really, it was such a hard year. Um, we wanted so badly to be able to, to help her and to lighten that load, but it just, she was just really struggling and our hearts were just broken in a million pieces over, over how she was doing. And, and one night I was uh, putting some laundry away in her room and she wasn't there and all of a sudden, I thought, you know what? I, I, I want to. I think. I think the song was "House of Miracles." Now that I remember, and I thought, I need to. I need to. I want to pray over this room, right? So I, I actually decided to open her windows, and I just thought, I'm just going to get whatever crud is in this room. I am going to speak it out, right? Whatever depression, whatever whatever illness in her mind, whatever sadness, I'm just, I, I'm going to just pray. I'm going to contend to God. I'm going to ask Him to just sweep it out the windows, and that He would show her He had a plan for her life, and show her that He loved her, and show her that she had a future, and that the whole that her whole life wasn't going to look like this. And so, and as moms and as dads, that's our job. It's our job to see things going on in our kids' lives or see things going on in our families' lives and say, I'm not just going to sit back and wring my hands and wonder what's going to happen. My job is to show up and contend for the people in my life, for the kingdom of God and against the enemy and whatever plan he might have for our families. We're not just going to sit back and take it. Now, I want to make this, this side note that I think is really important to make, and that is you don't have to have a man's or be married to have to be Ezra Connecto, right? You can show up as Ezra Connecto for anyone in your life. Maybe you show up that way for your sister who keeps picking the wrong guy, or you show up that way for your parents who need you to take care of them. So, so you have every bit as much Ezra Connecto as a woman who's married. This isn't necessarily a marriage talk; it's a woman talk, right? So you have that Ezra Connecto. You can show up for and contend for everybody in your life as well. Just wanted to make that distinction. Now, throughout the Old Testament, uh, rights of women were, were, fairly, um, were fairly inclusive. Um, they were allowed to be part of public worship, and they could sell and buy in the marketplace. We see this in Proverbs 31. 
And then somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, over 100 rules were added to Judaism that slowly eroded and took away the rights of women. And I want to just describe to you a little bit what life was like for women in that time because I want you to see the way that Jesus comes on the scene and becomes a liberator for women. And you're not going to understand that or feel that as deeply until you see what life was like for them. So in first century Israel, they had no voice. They were the property of men. They were allowed little to no education. They couldn't speak to men in public. If a man came over for dinner, they would have to eat in another room. Husbands were allowed to marry many wives, and they could be divorced for no real reason. They couldn't vote. Their testimony wasn't accepted in court. They had to stay in the outer court of the synagogue and were most often not allowed to read scriptures. And the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes of the day were not even allowed to look at a woman, like not even look, not even look in her direction. If there was a woman even in their vicinity, they would never, ever acknowledge her presence. And so think about the stories that we know about Jesus in Scripture and how he pushed back on the culture of the day, unashamedly, with strength, to fight back and give women back their dignity. So we're going to, what I want to do is go through like five quick women's stories, and these are going to be stories that you are familiar with, but I want you to think about the lens of what was happening culturally for women, and I want to show you that over and over through Scripture, he fights for you. Okay, he's fighting for you. So the first place that we see him honoring women is with his own mother. When he was 12, he was left behind after a feast of Passover. And uh, they, they didn't realize he wasn't with them. They went back to find him. He was with the scribes. He was totally holding his own with these guys. I mean, he was like, in his, he loved, you know, he was in his element. He said, I'm doing my father's work. But his parents were like, no, you're coming home right now. And it, the scripture says he went home and he lived in obedience to his parents. In the wedding at Cana, his mom was like, they're about to run out of wine. Something's got to happen soon. This party's about to go downhill. And she's like, Jesus, you need to do something. Now, think about, think about this. This is the first um, miracle in, listed in Scripture. How did she know? How did she know he could do that? The only way she knew he could do that was because he must have been doing cool stuff at home. Right? Like, he had to. Like, how did she just suddenly be like, oh, he can just turn a bunch of water to wine? She knew he could do cool stuff. I want to know the cool stuff that she already knew he could do. Someday we'll know. Someday we'll know what that is. Um, and, then, and then in the most um, painful and excruciating moment of his life on the cross, he takes time to make sure his mother's taken care of, and he honors her in that moment. Mary and Martha, we're familiar with them in Scripture. The most famous story is the Mary and Martha story, where Martha's really annoyed that Mary's not helping her. She's sick of doing all the work. Jesus, make her come help me. Think about it this way. Women weren't supposed to be sitting at a man's feet. Because when you sat at a man's feet, it made you a disciple, and women weren't allowed to be disciples. And so there's a chance that what Martha was saying was, there's some social taboo thing here happening that this shouldn't be happening. She ought to be here and not there. And so when Jesus defends her right to sit at his feet, he essentially was saying, you have every right to be a disciple. I mean, how cool is that considering the culture of the day? Uh, the woman at the well. He went straight into Samaria to a woman that to, to a nation that they normally didn't talk to and, and spoke to her with love and with care and with gentleness. And he told her that he was the Messiah. That was the first time he told anyone that. And she got to run back and be the first evangelist to that county. We are carriers of the gospel, women. We are meant to be carriers of the gospel. We're given a message. We are meant to share it. We're meant to go and tell it. We're meant to share our story. We're meant to tell people how much God loves them. He's put that inside of us, that gift and that ability inside of us. The woman with the issue of blood. 
She'd been bleeding for years. If she touched anyone, she made them unclean. And yet when she touched Jesus, he stopped. And he wasn't angry with her for making him unclean. He turned right around and he said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. We're meant to go after him. We're meant to go after Jesus. We're not meant to be anonymous. She went after his, the, the, the hem of his garment. She went after him and towards him. We're meant to go after the heart of God. And then Mary Magdalene, God sent her free from demonic bondage. She was one of the last people to stand at the cross when everyone else had scattered. And then at his resurrection, he revealed his resurrected body to Mary. Now, Peter and John had been there. I mean, he could have, that would have made sense to do that when more people were around. They came and they saw the grave clothes. But he had to have timed that just so that just Mary, just Mary would have seen his resurrected body. It's like the most important moment in human history. He chose her to be the one to see him. And then she got to run and tell the others. Women, we were meant to do great things. We were meant to do great things. And then this continued on into Paul's ministry. Paul was surrounded by some incredible women that helped him in his ministry. They supported him financially. They supported him emotionally. He fully expected them to be part of public worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, he gives them instructions that says, when you pray and prophesy, which means he expected them to be publicly doing these things, he gave instructions on that. And then in Romans 16, he shouts out all the women that had been helping him and supporting him. And he could have kind of maintained that, like, well, I'm the apostle and like these little people down here, but he calls them sisters. He calls them sisters in Christ. I wanted to share this, um, this little section with you here about uh, the way that Paul spoke about these women, because I just think it shows so much his care for them. Romans 16, 1 to 7. Be sure to welcome our friend Phoebe in the way of the master with all the generous hospitality we Christians are famous for. I heartily endorse both her and her work. She's a key representative of the church in Centria. Help her out in whatever she asks. She deserves anything you can do for her. She's helped many a person, including me. Say hello to Priscilla and Aquila, who have worked hand in hand with me in serving Jesus. They once put their lives on the line for me, and I'm not the only one grateful to them. All the non-Jewish gatherings of believers also owe them plenty, to say nothing of the church that meets in their house. Hello to my dear friend Eponidas. He was the very first follower of Jesus. And hello to Mary, what a worker she's turned out to be. And my cousins Andronicus and Hunia, we once shared a jail cell. They were believers in Christ before I was, and both of them are outstanding leaders. He honored them. He honored women. And so as we look back, we can see that Jesus designed us. He fought for us. And and when I look back at those stories of those women that we just looked at, in a culture where it said they're invisible, they're not seen, they don't matter, he over and over and over showed them that they were seen and they were known. And there's a story in Genesis that I want to kind of like park in here as we we continue. Her story has always just struck me. And uh, it's the story of Hagar. And Abram and Sarai had been given a, a prophecy that they were going to have a child. And it was, the, it was taking a little bit too long. So Sarai sent her maidservant, Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave, into her husband and thought, like, maybe this is just how the promise is going to happen. She kind of took matters into her own hands. This is how this is going to happen. It's going to happen through her. And so she became pregnant. Hagar became pregnant. But the relationship between her and Sarai went downhill really quickly. And Hagar, Hagar had some attitude problems, and Sarai did too. And so it, it kind of all disintegrated into Sarai being very abusive to Hagar. And so Hagar just couldn't take it anymore. Here she was a slave. She was far away from home. 
She had no control over her body, no control over anything that was happening to her. And now she was being abused. And so she ran away to the desert because she just couldn't take it anymore. And in verse 7 and 8 of Genesis 16, it says, An angel of God found her beside a spring in the desert. It was the spring on the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, maid of Sarai, what are you doing here? Have you ever just wanted to run away from everything and never look back? Have you ever found yourself in that desert place? I found the older I get that what sends you to those places usually isn't like one thing that happens to you. It's like this thing happens to you and it's bad enough and then another thing happens, right? And then, and then oh, another thing happens. And like just when you're not sure if you can take any more, one more thing happens. And so we find ourselves in that place of pain. And in Psalm, there's this phrase called deep calls to deep. And I always used to think it just sounded really cool, right? Doesn't it just sound like really deep calls to deep? But I've come to learn that what the psalmist was saying is the waves keep crashing over my head over and over at such a fast rate that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to come up for air. And it's usually right about this time that a well-meaning Christian will say, well, God won't give you more than you can bear, right? But that's really not what the Bible says. I mean, that would be nice. The Bible says that you won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. But even Paul said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Even, we even got to the point where we despaired of life. We've all been in this place of pain. Hey, you wonder, God, do you know me? Do you even see what's going on? Maybe you're not even good. Why would you let something like this happen? We find ourselves in a place where there's more than we can bear. We live in a sinful and a broken world where good things happen, bad things happen to good people, and there's just some answers we're not going to know till heaven. But, but that question, that longing of our heart is, are we alone? Are we known? Does he know what's happening? And we weren't promised that there wouldn't be trouble, Right? In fact, we were promised that there would be trouble. When you have trials, when you have tribulation, know that it's testing your faith. Know that it's producing something in you. It's not for nothing. It's not wasted. It's producing an endurance and, an, and a perseverance in you. But we want to get plucked out of it, right? We just want to kind of give our situation to God and just be like, just like teleport me out of this thing and over here because this, this situation looks so impossible. But he often works in our situation, not to pull us out of things, but to walk with us through them, right? Our deliverance comes as we continue to take those steps forward, even in those painful situations. We keep moving forward, and his promise is that I'm with you, I walk with you, you're never alone. So when he came to her in the desert, he called her by name. Now, if you notice in the text, Sarah and Abraham never called her by name. It was slave, slave girl, and it makes me just wonder, when God showed up to her, he gave her her dignity back. He called her Hagar. He called her by her name. He sought her out. And she's so overwhelmed that God would just seek her out and find her and speak to her that she bursts out and she names him, you are El Roy, which means you are the God who sees me. She said, I now have seen the God who sees me. He searches our hearts, friends. He doesn't just create us and plop us on earth and say, good luck, we'll see how this goes. 
He knows you better than you know yourself. If you told your entire story from beginning to end, he would know, he would still know more about it. We only see pieces. He sees the whole picture. So he tells her to go back. And this is what I mean about he sometimes delivers us through what we're going through, not out of. She has to go back. But he sends her back with hope and a promise. He says, your son won't be a slave. He says, you'll be a mother of many descendants. Yes, you have to go back, but there's promises. There's hope. And so what he does is he finds us. He calls us by name, and he gives us hope to keep going. About three years ago, I received a letter, ironically, exactly on my birthday, September 21st, which is my favorite because who doesn't love September, right? So on my birthday, I got this letter from New Hope Adoption Agency. And I've shared before that I am adopted and had never received anything from them before. And I was freaked out. Now, I had always been asked this question. When people find out I'm adopted, they always ask me the same question. Would you meet your birth mom? And I always had the same exact answer. I knew exactly how I was going to feel, exactly what. And I would always said, I won't seek her out. I don't think I would seek her out because I want to maintain her privacy and whatever's happening with her. But if I knew, if I had any idea she was looking for me, I would jump at that chance. And I got this letter, and I don't even think I opened it. It just sat there most of the day. And I finally built up the courage by the end of the day to open it. And it just simply said, we've been trying to get in touch with you. Will you contact us? Whew. And I was like, no. And, and, and like the, the response surprised me. Like I'd always thought the moment I knew she was looking for me that I would immediately say yes. And, and, and I had to come to terms with the fact that I had heard so many amazing things about her. I knew some things. Um, you know, the year that I was adopted is when everything is, it was closed. So back in the olden days, you couldn't know anything. It was always just like, you couldn't know a name, you couldn't know any. So I knew very little. But my dad's best friend was the adoption agent. And so he had given him just a few, just a few facts about my mom. And I realized I was afraid to open that door because I was afraid for that to not be true. I thought, you know, maybe it's better, maybe it's better just to not know, right? Like maybe I just want to keep this, this picture in her head that like she really loved me and that she really was a person that wanted me to have a good home. Like I want to just kind of like maintain what I think about it. And I was driving Brandon nuts. Like he was like, he like wanted to buy plane tickets that day. I don't even know where we were flying to, but he was like ready to meet her. He was like, don't know what you're doing. I don't understand what's happening with you. You've got to go meet her. And so finally, I, I, I contacted, the, contacted the adoption agency and they said, we just have a letter. We just have a letter from your mom that we want to send to you. Is it okay to send it on to you? And I said, okay. So that letter comes in the mail and it was five, five pages, handwritten. And it was just full of love and just full of what her hopes for me had been. It was full of her telling me about her life and wanting to know more about mine. And once again, I was, I was scared. I was just scared to meet her. But, but I, I, I knew that what I'd heard about her was true. So it took me a little bit longer. And the very second I got up enough nerve, I, I, I called her. Imagine calling somebody you've never talked to before and saying, I'm your daughter, right? I mean, 
how do you get up the nerve to do that? But, but I did, and I called her, and, um, and she immediately began to cry. And as I told her about my life and what we were doing, she, she said, it's the best, the best gift you could ever give me is to know that I did the right thing. She explained to me the, the few moments, the afternoon that she and I spent together. She, she called our meeting a reunion, which I thought was so sweet. Me meeting her for the first time, she called it a reunion because we got to spend the first afternoon after I was born together. She explained to me just what a heart-wrenching, unbelievably difficult decision it was, especially when you couldn't know anything. Once you, once you placed your baby, you never knew anything. And so we talked on the phone and we agreed to meet and Brandon bought the tickets that night. And so a couple of, about three years ago, I had the chance to go, to go meet my birth mom. And Brandon had one job. <laughs> one job. Record, record us meeting for the first time. I really still don't know what happened. He's explained it to me. I still don't know. But there's a lot of footage of the inside of our rental car. <laughs> a lot of beeping because he took his seatbelt off. Yeah. But at the end, he, he, he gets it up through the windshield, and, and there we are hugging and embracing. And it's been such an incredible relationship. We've kept in touch. We spend time down there. They, she lives in Sarasota, another plus. Um, and then come to find out she lives only 45 minutes from my parents, from my adopted parents. And they're friends. They hang out. My mom is, my birth mom has been to their house and they went through all my baby albums and tried to tell the stories and catch her up and, and all those things. And when I think about the decision she made, I realized that in the moment she made that decision, God saw her. God saw her, saw her through making a decision like that. And I realized that God saw me. He saw where I was meant to be. I was meant to be where, where, I, had, where I ended up, and, and I'm so grateful. One of my prayers today for you is that you will see the God who sees you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows when one sparrow falls, he knows. And some of you may have been questioning lately, God, like, do you even care? Do you even see? I'm here to tell you he does. He does. He sees you. You stand with me as we get ready to close. Maybe you're in the room today and you grew up in a home where you felt like you were just completely invisible. You felt like your needs were really more of an annoyance than anything and so you just stopped needing anything. Or maybe you had someone walk out on you and leave you and ever since that moment you've been questioning your worth and questioning your value. Or maybe you're in a desert season where you just feel like that deep calls to deep, where there's just one thing that keeps piling on top of another, 
on top of another. And what you see is brokenness. What you see is a situation that seems absolutely impossible. You believe that you've been hurt beyond repair. You believe that what you're going through is going gonna, is gonna to change you to the point where you can't ever be happy or be who you were before. I'm telling you, God sees someone he designed. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't waste your pain. Nothing is wasted. Everything you're going through, he will use to grow you, to mature you, for you to use it to comfort other people. And he sees you as precious. He sees you as his called one. He's never once taken his eye off of you. As we close in worship, I just want you to say something with me. I want you to say, I see the God who sees me. I see the God who sees me. He loves you today. Amen.